Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Stephanie Estima. She wrote a book called The Betty Body, which is a geeky goddess's guide to intuitive eating, balanced hormones, and transformative sex life. So we're going to talk to her about her experience and what led her to write this book. Welcome to the show. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So I know you are a doctor of chiropractic medicine and you've got a special interest in metabolism, body composition, you know, female physiology. Tell us a little bit about your experience and what shows you to go into that profession. Like, let's start from the beginning on, you know, what got you interested in health and helping people in this way? Oh, that's a great question. Very rarely am I actually asked that. Um, I started wanting to, I started very early on actually wanting to go into uh, pediatrics and volunteered at the local hospital at the pediatric, uh, you know, NICU lasted, uh, I think a day (laughs) and said, no, this is like, this is not uh, for me and started to volunteer at uh, chiropractor's offices and physical therapist offices, always had a really big interest in fitness and nutrition, even just from when I was a little girl, I was always the weird girl at school that didn't have like the, you know, the ho-hos or the, you know, the Twinkies. I always had like my snacks were cherry tomatoes and apples, you know, which <laughs> at the time was like, you know, people would make fun of me, but now, you know, that's what, that's what the stand, the gold standard is really is like fruits and vegetables for snacks. And, um, really fell in love with chiropractic. I volunteered at a, um, one chiropractic clinic in particular, um, and, the patients were healthy. They were happy. Um, and it was in stark contrast to what I had seen, um, sort of in the NICU and, and more of the more traditional, uh, medical field where people were going in to see the doctor when they were sick and miserable. And I was really, really curious about, um, chiropractic. So my undergraduate degree, um, even before I started, you know, volunteering at these, at these clinics was in neuroscience and, um, and psychology. So already, just fascinated with the brain that the brain could study the brain. I mean, how, like as students we're essentially studying our, you know, uh, the brain. So very much in love with neurology and psychology and chiropractic seemed like the natural extension of that. So how we can really see real time neurological changes by, you know, whether it's functional neurology applications, whether it's rehabilitation and flexibility and mobility and adjustments and all of these different um, vectors that you can use in chiropractic practice. So that's where I was uh, and was very happily, uh, you know, practicing. I had a brick and mortar practice in Toronto, Canada, which is where I'm from and um, started noticing or started really wanting to um, expand, like did a lot of rehab, did a lot of body work, but wanting to expand into nutrition as well. Cause the part of the, at least the, the philosophy that I um, hold to be true around the body is yes, the physical aspect is important, but so is the chemistry and mm-hmm. food is information. So started um, creating a ketogenic uh, style program uh, inside the practice and started noticing really big differences in outcomes between men and women and coupled with, you know, I talk about this in the book, uh, my own experiences around, and even just my own philosophical, uh, 
premise around what it means to be a woman. And that meant, you know, I always sort of looked at my own menstrual cycle as kind of this annoyance that was every month, you know, was really painful, would throw me out. I wasn't able, I had to, you know, have copious amounts of medication in order to kind of get through the days leading up to the onset. And then, you know, the days, the few days after. And it was kind of the combination of those things that really led me down more of a, you know, a geeky rabbit hole, if you will, on female physiology and why some interventions, and, you know, I've come to conclude that most interventions we respond to in a slightly nuanced and a different way than our male counterparts. And that was sort of the birth, uh, if you will, of the book as well as how we can implement something like the ketogenic diet, but honor the unique uh, hormonal composition of women who are either in their reproductive years or those of us who are in perimenopause or moving into, into menopause and what are some of the considerations that we need to be making as women in terms of how we traditionally view the ketogenic diet and how that might impact our neurotransmitters, our gut microbiome, our moods, our, you know, our body's propensity to hold on to more fat, right? Like our, you know, as women, naturally we will defend fat, uh, like an insurance policy. <laughs> like we will hold on to it, uh, like an insurance policy if we're not doing the right thing. So that's sort of the, you know, two minute origin story of, of who I am and where this book came from. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I'd love to hear your opinion on the different results between men and women there. I would assume that perhaps I could be wrong, but perhaps the women actually, the men had great success and the women sometimes failed and got fatter. You're exactly right. Yes. And they had more <laughs> cravings and they couldn't, yeah. they couldn't handle, you know, the, the long-term, you know, any diet, whether we're talking about keto, you're talking about paleo, you're talking about any, the key to the success of any diet is consistency over a Delta, right. Over a long period of time. And women just for whatever reason around that two or three, sometimes four week mark. Um, and we can, we'll get into some of the mechanics and the, uh, my, uh, solutions for it in terms of why this is, but they just have these insatiable carbohydrate cravings that it doesn't matter how much fat they have. It doesn't how much, it doesn't matter how many fat bombs they have or how much protein they, they just, all they can think about is carbohydrates. Um, and so we would see these, the first, you know, the first couple of iterations of the diet that I was offering in the clinic was very standard, was very, I'll call it very male-based, you know, it was very much based on um, you know, someone who I've looked up to like Mark Sisson or, you know, Peter Atia or Dom D'Agostino, all of these sort of men in the sort of expert space in the medical or the scientific um, space that were doing it like men and getting really awesome results, mm-hmm. right? Because they were men. And, um, and all the studies really for everything are done on men, it's, right? I it's mean, all like, men. We're That's not right. factoring in for this, you know, crapolas. Um, you know, yeah, very interesting about so, and again, then there's these other factors, right? So A, I've realized over time, people misunderstand keto and eat way more fat than they're burning. You know, right. there's lots of like mistakes people make, right? And I, I did it too. I made all these mistakes. That's why I know them. And then also too, looking at, you know, maybe again, what more information can we get? Like the genetic profile and the APOE, you know, and realizing like, ooh, maybe I'm not the type that can handle high saturated fat. I think one of the problems with 
paleo keto when it first came out is everyone was going to the MCTs and all of the saturated. Now, of course, I do not feel saturated fat is bad for you, but if that's your predominant, like your main source of it, you might need to think about switching it up, right? And having a little olive oil over here. Like, and I noticed because a lot of the products were coconut based or whatever, that I was just like in this saturated fat category too much until I really realized that, looked at some factors and then thought, you know what? I need to kick this ratio around. Do you know what I'm saying? And also I would say, and then I'll I'll let you kind of comment on all the stuff I've been talking about here. But the other thing too is yes, while the keto approach is an incredible jumpstart, it can get someone, you know, insulin sensitive therapeutically for people with brain injuries or epilepsy. I mean, really miraculous stuff happening, but unless you have to be on it consistently forever for some type of thing, I think, you know, the main message Mark talks about, and I think I would push too, is again, the metabolic flexibility. It also was not ancestral that you never ate a carb at all the entire year. I mean, maybe if you were right in, you know, Inuit or like, you you know what I mean? You're like with yaks in South America, you're in the middle of the, okay, maybe, you know, sure. But there still was a time when we'd come across that stuff and ingest it. Maybe we'd go overboard then, but it still was... I guess, I guess the metabolic flexibility and the more ancestral approach of like, yeah, well, every once in a while, we would have found some blueberries and eaten them. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, eat, and eat the damn apple people. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think that there has been this perversion in the, you know, in keto circles, if you will, and paleo circles around the demonization of carbohydrates, where we are so petrified yes. to have all types of carbs that it's, it's sort of an, you know, I would classify it as it's, it's a new type of orthorexic eating disorder, right? We want to be totally, I, I think that it's very important to have carbohydrates, strategic carbohydrates. You know, we're not talking about clearing out, you know, you know, the, you know, the crackers and the chips and the cookies or, you know, your local haagen but even that there's a time and a place, you know, food is very celebratory and we tend to have these big life events with, you know, people get married and then there's, even when people die, there's food, people bring over cake and there's, you get together for a coffee with your friends, you have people over for dinner. So there's this social aspect to food. And I think that to your point, if we're able to therapeutically apply some, a tool like the ketogenic diet, where we can induce metabolic flexibility. And when we say metabolic flexibility, just in case there is maybe one listener who doesn't know what what that means at this point, we're we're talking about the idea of your ability to switch from being glycolytic and using glucose as your main source to using an alternate fuel substrate. So that might be a fatty acid, or if we're talking about the ketogenic diet, of course, we're talking about ketones like beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate as these signaling molecules and kind of what we know now that they act like hormones, right? They help with not only, um, you know, ATP production, which is, you know, part of the definition of being metabolically flexible using these, um, using these, um, uh, derivatives of your uh, triglyceride as a, as a fat source, but also they can signal to lower inflammatory pathways. And so when we compare that to the way that a typical, you know, the standard American diet, let's say, um, what we're what we're looking at is we're looking at lowering inflammation. We're looking at improving body composition, and of course, with this metabolic flexibility, it allows you to dip in and out of your ability to either use glucose or an alternative fuel like ketone bodies as your energetic substrate. And part of this, you know, one of the mistakes I think, and you could disagree. I'm, I'm not sure what your opinion is on this, but my. In, in looking at all this throughout the years and all the people is that 
sometimes people adopt a ketogenic diet, but then they don't adopt the workout program that goes best with it. Oh, yes. Right? Okay, right? So you get, and that's like a mistake too. You know, because they're missing a component, so they're still on a very like glycolytic, right? You know, can you can you touch on that? Yeah, I think um, the two biggest factors that are going to be predictive of not only longevity, which is you know something I'm sure we'll touch on today, but just your general um, you know body composition and your enjoyment in life, because we know that both your nutrition and your exercise protocols are going to directly affect brain health in a myriad of ways. Is that you should be, and I'm talking to my men and my women, but specifically my women around this idea that you have to move. So that is, and there's two sort of categories of movement. So there's kind of generalized movement, like that non-exercise activity thermogenesis, that sort of, you know, walking or gardening or puttering around the kitchen. You know, I, in the book, I talk about, you know, I, whenever I have people coming over, like when my mother-in-law comes over, like I clean a little bit, like I scrub a little bit more than what I might, if it, it was just me. So, you know, thinking about generalized movement, and then we want to from there, move into specialty movement. And with that, I'm talking mainly about resistance training. And we'll talk about cardio as well um, in terms of some of the you know cardio metabolic benefits that that imparts. But resistance training is so key for when we think about some of these you know mechanisms that we're talking about today, when we're talking about reducing inflammation, improving your mood, improving your sleep, you have to move. It's never just one, it's like not, it's not just one nutrient or one way of eating that's going to correct all manner of sins. It really does have to be, you know, a combination of both the nutrients that you're taking in on a consistent basis and also the consistent movement practices that you develop for yourself, because this is what, you know, the pairing of these two, I think are what is going to be ultimately, uh, you know, will ultimately allow us for the best prognosis for the person. You know, I have, I, I, I kind of wish this wasn't, so I used to be a person that like, I could walk for hours, you know, I could just do hikes and whatever and really realize as time went by, that's not where it's at. It is with the resistance. <laughs> it really is. Mm-hmm. And if anything for the organ reserve factor, right? So, you know, and again, you've got a lot of people like in their 60s, 70s, they're like, well, I, I walk my steps every day. And you're like, eh, but that doesn't help almost with the organ reserve on challenging these muscles to challenge the bones, to challenge your lungs, to challenge these things that all come together when you break your hip and you're in the hospital. Right. And right. so I think that that's to me, the most important thing thing as I'm getting older is focusing more on weights and less on like this card. Like I re- and also I've seen it in my body walking five miles does nothing for my physique compared to lifting weights for 30 minutes, even if it's light and it's not crazy. Cause I don't, and we're taught as women, it's like cardio bunnies, right? Like spend an hour on the treadmill, spend an hour on the elliptical. And, you know, of course there's going to be, you're going to have benefits from, from doing cardiovascular work. Um, I would argue that there's, you know, different zones of training that you might want to, you know, um, you know, oscillate through a kind of lower, lower zones being better for some of the cardiovascular um, benefits. But I, I agree with you. I think that women are, we're scared for whatever reason. And I, you know, hopefully part of this, like the purpose of this podcast will be to dispel some of these myths as well, but women are scared of getting big. Like, I don't know where this continues to, it's like, I don't want to get bulky. I don't want to, it's like, you know how hard you have to work as a woman 
to get bulky. Like you have to work. And and it's probably when you do see women, you know, it's where, where, you know, you might see these bodybuilders, there's probably some exogenous uh, help there, right? There's probably some exogenous. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, um, they definitely take high levels of testosterone for start. Yeah, exactly. But, but you're right. They, um, it's almost like they would say to the average person, uh, I'd like to see you try good luck getting as big as me. you don't have to be in the gym. Like these are professional mofos out there doing and this come stuff. Back to me That's not going to happen to you out there. If you lift yeah. weights every day for 30 minutes, you know, and yeah. also come back to me in 20 years, because in order right. for you to develop that amount of hypertrophy and that amount of mu- like mature muscle fiber, yep. like you need to be doing this not 30 minutes. It's like several hours for yes. many, many, many years, decades. Um, yeah. So that would be my, I am a very strong believer in resistance training and you sort of see these like memes. It's like, you can't, um, you know, you can't, you know, green smoothie your way. And I, I even put this in the book, like you can't green smoothie your way out of a bad you know, diet, but you also can't get out of exercising, you know, like you can do yes. all the nutrients you can like eat in a, you know, very clean way, however you define that, but you cannot get away from the benefits that exercise in part, specifically resistance training. There will never be a drug, never, there will mm-hmm. never be a drug that can give you the same amount of benefit that regular resistance training can. Absolutely. And I just noticed when I, and it's so clear. So if I'm, I'm usually regular about it, but then there's been times where like two weeks go by for whatever reason, traveling, and maybe I've only gotten in the swimming or only the walking and haven't lifted weights. I notice the difference immediately. It's like, these are things that are, it's like compounded interest. You have to keep up with it. And of course, the precursor to hormones in terms of what resistance training can do, I know is beneficial. And I want to get into some of the, you know, let's, let's talk to the ladies now here for a minute. I, you know, I, I love that you say, you know, stop treating your period as some like arch enemy. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we all have these moments because every woman's had an uncomfortable period of like feeling either totally exhausted. Right. And, and, you know, that might still be one day of like, okay, the energy's not there. The mental energy's not there, or you get a little crampy, whether it's enough to take an Advil or not, it's not the point. We've all had moments of like, damn it. Or like, uh, you know, and the poo pooing ourselves in those <laughs> moments. And, you know, because I had, been misdiagnosed with PCOS many years ago and had issues when I was hypothyroid. I am the person that is so grateful and welcome its arrival. I'm so happy. I'm always like, thank you so much for my healthy gynecological makeup and health, because I know what it's like to have clots dropping out of you and feel in pain all the time and bleeding all the time and having a horrible situation, you know, and granted mine was induced by hypothyroidism at the time. And then once I corrected all that, I haven't had a problem since. And so it's that contrast of, oh my God, anything is better than what that was, right? Like I'm just grateful to be regular and normal and, you know, so I think we often do poo poo and we talk crap about it. But the truth is, it is something to be honored and welcomed. Um, and let's talk a little bit about that celebration versus treating it as an arch enemy. Yeah, I mean, first, I think your menstrual cycle is a sacred rhythm. That you know, it is the it is your reproductive cycle. It is the cycle, whether you want to or not. It is what brings about life. And when we begin to just shift our mentality from, oh, it's like the curse, it's like I'm on the rag, it's like the, to this sacred rhythm that you've been blessed with and how you can optimize it. And then just even taking it a bit further and, and looking at your menstrual cycle as a vital sign, I think is incredibly important in terms of a mindset shift, but 
but also the way that you view your body. And we can go off on many tangents. I'll try to stay like there's so much that goes into the way that a woman thinks about her body, like the guilt and the shame and the blame that we sort of carry from growing up in a society that tells us that we need to look a certain way, smile a certain way, you know, have all of these different, you know, uh, uh, physical presentations or manifestations of what we should look like. Um, but just leaving that aside for a moment, if you were to, if you were to go to, you know, a hospital for whatever reason, they, they would look at your vital signs. They would look at your heart rate. They would look at your oxygen saturation. They would look at your blood pressure, your respiratory rate, et cetera. And I would absolutely love if every woman started looking at their menstrual cycle as important as their blood pressure, their heart rate, their respiratory rate, because this is an indication of the dance that your brain and your, you know, your hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. So the way that your brain talks to your ovaries and the communication pathway that's there. And it gives you clues about where you may need to correct, um, you know, whether it's stress imbalance, hormonal imbalance in the next cycle. And it's, you know, one of the most beautiful things that I can offer is I suffered with, you know, just horrible cramps. And I, again, I would medicate it to sort of silence it so I can keep, you know, punching at work and whatever my type A personality would, you know, force me to kind of ignore it. But the beautiful thing that every woman who has never really enjoyed her menstrual cycle needs to know is that it can be reversed and it can be reversed relatively quickly. So there's a couple of, there's many things that I talk about in the book around stress reduction, uh, sunlight, you know, morning routines, evening routines, all of these foundational basics can have directionally massive impact on your experience of your menstrual cycle. Yeah. I've had all of the positive changes too. And also a great thing to track and be aware of. I like the advent of technology. I think one of the best things is having these period tracking yes. apps, to be honest, yes, right? I mean, absolutely. oh my God, like if you guys aren't on this, all my friends have them, but that Which is one do you a, use? Which one do you use? I think the one I'm just, it's like period tracker, like basic, oh, like, you nice. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just use it and it's great to sort of like know where you're going, but also it really helped me through the perimenopause moments, which I'm still sort of in a little bit, but was able to solve because I noticed like, hold on a minute, my PMS is lasting too long here. Like this is now I have PMS and it's like, not just, oh, I feel a little bit annoyed the day before it was like, Oh no, there's all sorts of physical things going on. Being in tune with that, being able to track that and understand that I also was estrogen dominant, you know, and I had high fibrinogen and some other things I had to clear up with supplements and other things that really contributed to the overall just, and now I I barely notice I get it. I still think there's always going to be an element of a little bit of exhaustion. Hormones are dropping. You might be a little bit tired, but I'm not suffering. Do you know what I mean? Um, It's just like a, all right, you know, I'm not like on fire today. Like I might be a week from now with my brain, but it's not horrible. I'm not out of commission. Um, If I have to take anything for any uncomfortability, it's like half a children's Advil. Like, you know what I mean? Like for just once. And maybe it's just like, because it's just a little uncomfortable for the most part, I don't have to do that. Whereas years before it was like, Oh, I hope the Advil's around or I'm going to be a mess or, you know, this kind of thing. So let's talk a little bit about um, let's get into the ways that ways of eating that honor your menstrual cycle. And I know you, we can't touch on everything here, but give us what you got in terms of, cause you know, again, if people are strictly keto in one way or strictly 
this way and they're not maybe seeing that maybe during this phase they should do this more and you know eat less of that give us some tips around that absolutely and first i just want to honor what you just said because it is so important data will always win <laughs> so right. if you have data from i use clue that's the period tracker that i use uh, there are many that's not to you know i have no affiliation with them i just really like the user experience but if you are able to be tracking the way in which your cycle changes, particularly as you were just talking about in perimenopause, you will be able to go to your, you know, whether it's your naturopath or your functional medicine provider or your medical provider and say, Hey, this is the data, like the last eight months, this has been like, it's been a 28 day cycle. It's lasted five days. And now I'm noticing that like, it's extended out to like a 32 day cycle and I'm bleeding for a lot. Like you're, you'll be able to articulate exactly the changes so that you won't be dismissed and you know not to poo poo but women tend to get dismissed a lot in medicine yes. and if you don't have the data to be able to communicate what is happening um your your chances of being heard are going to are going to lower so i just love what you said because it's such a foundational basic i think most people miss it but it was so elegant and i just wanted to make sure like just download a free app start tracking your period even if you've never done it before you'll be able to understand how long your period is, what you're at, you know, how long your bleed week is, what your total cycle length is. You know, I'm able, I know which ovary is like, you know, one of my ovaries has a 28 day cycle. The other one's 29, you know, like I know where I'm coming, like which ovaries, cause I've been tracking it for, for so long. So I just wanted to highlight what you said. Well, you know, also, so let me just chime in and say this. So as a thyroid expert, what I have noticed with people I've either coached or myself over time, tinkering with uh, my dose and things like that, um, this, the less optimal your thyroid, the shorter the cycle. And if you're mm -hmm. on almost too much D3 or too much, they can be much longer. It's an right. interesting way to kind of look at it. There's not necessarily a study that can prove that other than your own N equals one. And it usually is applicable. So when I was on too much T3 and I was hyper for a time, my periods were like every 32 days, you know what I mean? It was interesting. And then if I was on too low, they'd be every 25, every 26 and something wasn't right. And now when I'm on my optimal dose, everything's perfect at 27, 28, you know, they don't last long. Like it, it's so interesting. And again, only in tracking and following that, could I have even noticed that there was some sort of connection there. And so, yeah, just imparting on everyone, get the period app, everybody and get on it. <laughs> okay, and that's evident. And that's actually evidence-based. So we often right. will conflate, you know, evidence-based only means what's available in the literature. And you and I, you know, already said it in this podcast, the amount of available literature that's high quality, that's just been done in women, very sparse. So we have to pull in our clinical knowledge um, to be able to fill in some of the gaps. And even though it's an N, you know, N of one, yes, it's a very low N, you know, but if you're able to look at the data over time and make tweaks and see what works right for you, you know, I'm really big on the idea of heal thyself doctor, right? Like a lot of, you know, we, we, sometimes ascribe a lot more power to people with, you know, the alphabet soup behind their name. And I ascribe to that too. It's like, I'm like, okay, I got this, I got that, I got this, you know, but I, I think that, you know, the power of your intuition and your ability to manipulate some of the variables, I think is very important as well. So yes, I agree with you. So let's talk about your original question, which was how we can manipulate our eating, our nutrition um, over, um, over the course of our cycle. And I will say that in the Betty body, I go through sort of two distinct phases of applying the ketogenic diet to a woman's um, physique. And the first is more of a 
what I would call a therapeutic intervention of a ketogenic diet. So we are going for ketosis in a 28 or 29 day cycle. And there's a couple of um, uh, sort of steps, if you will, like some stipulations that I put in there. So we as you were saying, you know, the way that keto used to be sort of done, it was just like all the saturated fat and like the MCT and the coconut, this, and like the, you know, I call it like the bacon butter burgers and repeat, right. It was just like all the like tubs of sour cream. And as long as it fit your macros, it was fine. And, you know, I, I really do reject that idea. I think that there needs Mm -hmm. to be for women, we can do keto and still integrate some of the important um, um, considerations for the microbiome, um, that I think it, that I think that we should be considering because we, you know, think about the immune system and the gut and the gut brain axis and the impact that gut has on your mood and your behaviors and your beliefs and all the things. So, um, one of the big, um, differences I would say in this ketogenic application versus sort of what's traditionally, uh, preached is that there's a lot of fiber. There's a lot of greens. Um, I draw heavily from the brassica genus. So talking all about like broccoli sprouts and broccoli and the, you know, the bok choy and the Brussels sprouts, all of these things that have high, um, uh, high concentrations of something called sulforaphanes. I'm sure you've talked about sulforaphanes on the podcast before. Um, but just as a, as a quick review, when we're, when we're thinking about, um, liver detoxification and estrogen metabolism, this compound really matters. Let me, let me ask you a question there. Sorry to interrupt, but sure. so on that note, um, what about, again, the adjustment that might need to be made if you would agree to people that have an issue with foods high in sulfur? If people have an issue with foods high in sulfur. Yeah. Like I'm kind of one of those people. It's any there's even a genetic component that says so, but I've I've felt the reaction. So for me, like I love Brussels sprouts, like I love them, but mm-hmm. I also try to switch it up a little bit more between some other greens, just because I know my reaction when I Absolutely. have some kind of sulfur. So I would just say, yes, I agree with all of that. That's even all been studied heavily. So, but I think there again, these are scenarios where if you're out there, you might need to mitigate that. Or again, if you have a histamine issue, right? So just kind of throwing yes. that out there as a yes. thing, because I'm one of those people where like I love eggs, I'm not allergic to them. If you took a test, I'm not allergic to them, but I have an issue. Like if I eat garlic too much, forget it. It's like a bad situation. And so again, those are like foods high in sulfur, which some of them I love, um, but I see the reaction I have. So again, that's like. I guess we're just saying, I'm saying, Hey, even though that stuff's all good for you, you still have to take your own experience. Right. And if you're bloated and have gas every time, you know, you absolutely much of these things. So that's just one component. I realized for myself, I still eat those things. I just eat them more in moderation throughout the week than I would maybe chart or some other things that might be less of that. But yes, sorry. I just wanted to throw that out there as a, you know, a little tangent. Yeah, I think that you have a couple of options. So first is you don't have to eat them at all, right? As you were saying, you can switch them up with other green leafy vegetables or other greens or other vegetables like peppers where we're we're still getting a lot of the, you're still getting natural fiber that's contained in the food. The other thing that you can do is you can steam them, right? So we know that steaming, you know, uh, if and uh, you know if you're having foods that are raw, as you mentioned, and you're noticing that you're getting some of this GI distress afterwards, you know, steaming them or sauteing them is going to degrade the uh the sulforaphane content in there. So, you know, you can right, you can kind of play with those options or as you mentioned kind of making sure that you're rotating uh your vegetables through them. Now, I talk about the sulfur like the sulforaphanes in the book because I think that it's important for women to understand how the 
metabolism of estrogen is related to that. And when we think about um, the second phase of liver detoxification, which is called conjugation, this is where sulforaphanes really do shine in that they will help to um, preferentially um, move estrogen, like the metabolites of estrogen down more of what's referred to as like the protective path, this two hydroxy estrogen um, pathway. And you mentioned before that you were, uh, that you were running estrogen uh, dominant for many years. And part of the reason um, why we uh, see a lot of estrogen dominance in women is in part from their liver health and their ability to, do, to degrade estrogen properly. And the other piece to that is their gut, is their microbiome, right? Their ability to eliminate the estrogen before it gets reabsorbed by um, uh, by uh, enzymes in the gut. So this is where, where these sulforaphane containing vegetables are important, but of course, you know, there's no, and I would never be so, um, arrogant to, uh, to suggest that this is the only way, uh, that anybody could ever consume their vegetables. I, I believe in consuming the rainbow as well, but I wanted to highlight that, that category of vegetables because of its role in estrogen metabolism. Right. Yeah. And so again, sorry, we're little tangents, but moving in a way that honors our menstrual cycle. So obviously those components, because of the way it can metabolize estrogen is possible, you know, is positive. What are some of the other things we need to think about in terms of our cycle and what we should or shouldn't be doing when it comes to food? Yeah. So the other, the other thing that I like in that first phase or that therapeutic intervention is the addition of resistant starches. So resistant starches, sometimes called prebiotics, again, to feed the gut microbiome. Um, you know, I mentioned at the top of our conversation that sometimes, uh, I would, I would notice women, like it didn't matter how much fat you gave them, how much MCT oil, they just wanted carbohydrates. And that's really a distress signal from the microbiome. That's where those cravings are coming from because you're getting these um, colonocytes or these, um, these, um, you know, bugs, these, by these um, bugs in the microbiome that are essentially starving. So they, when we give them um, resistant starches, so examples of that might be green bananas or green banana flour green plantains or green plantain flour, raw potato starch, raw potatoes, cold rice. These now serve as a food source for the microbiome. And then they in turn will produce something called postbiotics, which are short chain fatty acids. One of the most prominent ones being butyrate. And that is going to help to quell some of those cravings that we often hear about in that second or third week of doing pure keto. It also helps with sleep, which a lot of women often find is disturbed for them, helps to you know repair the lining of the gut. There's so many different um, things that butyrate um, does, but there's a, I sort of write about all of those in the book. So that's sort of how I would approach keto in that first phase. And then once a woman goes through that first phase of keto, then we move into you know what I've called in the book, keto cycling. And this is where we start to pair our food with our menstrual cycle. So I talk about week one and week three. So your bleed week, so the week that you um, uh, start your period, very, very resistant or very well adapted to restriction. So that might be fasting, uh, which we also talk about in the book. And then I, uh, you know, like the ketogenic diet is a form of, you know, it's a form, it's a fasting mimetic in a way that we are not restricting all macronutrients, just one and kind of, you know, bringing down protein. So 
in week one and week three, I love there to be that uh, ketogenic protocol. So I talk about a 70, 20, 10 split. So 70% or so fat, 20% uh, protein. And then, you know, the fill is carbohydrates. And then for a woman, uh, who is still, um, in her reproductive years, weeks two and four, I actually like to bring her protein and her carbohydrate count up. And there's a couple of different reasons why, um, we do that in each week. So in week two, we are pre ovulation, right? We're moving towards ovulation, which for your menstrual cycle is actually the main point of your cycle. It's not your period. You know, I often joke that, you know, your period is sort of like the popular girl. It gets all the attention, but the main point of your menstrual cycle in totality is to ovulate. And what we see in that pre-ovulatory week is we see estrogen rise and we also see testosterone rise. Now, testosterone, um, is an important hormone, has many different functions in the body. Some of the main ones are, of course, maintaining uh, lean muscle mass. Uh, it's also for our mood. It's for uh, you know uh, improving our body composition, our ability to use fat. And so increasing your protein during this week is a way to complement your rising testosterone. And the way, the reason for that is, um, something called muscle protein synthesis. So anytime you, um, have somewhere between, uh, you know, two to, uh, call it two and a half grams of, of a, an amino acid called leucine, um, you will start this process of, um, muscle protein synthesis, which is kind of what it sounds like you're synthesizing muscle proteins. And as we and we've kind of talked about the importance of resistance training. I think that as we move into per, our perimenopausal and menopausal years, maintaining your muscle mass should be one of your primary focuses. So you can build your muscles in the gym, which is a necessary, which we've talked about, but the other way that you can build your muscles in, is, in, is in the kitchen. And we can do that through amplifying and increasing, um, our, our protein intake and by, and as a complement to that, also increasing your carbohydrates. Um, carbohydrates, as many of you are probably very well versed on, you know, degrade like it's it's broken down into um, glucose, which the the hormonal response to that is going to be insulin. And you know, some you know someone like you can really relate to this because insulin is actually really important not only for the thyroid, um, but it helps in preventing muscle breakdown. It helps in preserving the muscle mass that you have already developed through your hard work in the gym and, 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 you know, the proteins that you are, that you're consuming. So I love to pair higher protein and a higher carbohydrate, um, profile for a woman in week two. And then we revisit that again in week four and that week, right before her, um, her period, because again, what we see in week four is this sort of frenzied, you know, every, all of the nutrients that a woman is consuming in this week tends to be thrown into the endometrial lining. Like we're trying to make the endometrial lining, you know, thick and fluffy and, uh, you know, kind of a, a perfect receptacle for a fertilized egg. So if you were to sort of look at a woman and, and take a, you know, a blood draw of her that week, you're going to see that her plasma glucose, her amino acids, her, uh, her free fatty acids, her glutathione, her vitamin D, selenium, zinc, all the things are, are lower because of this, attempt to build up the lining of the endometrium. So having more protein, um, is going to, um, it's going to help, you know, satisfy some of the nitrogen requirements that she has that week. 
Again, the carbohydrates are going to be a complement to that. And then I actually, in, in week four, I actually talk about increasing your total caloric um, content. Like you increase your calories by, you know, 10%, 15%. Um, and this is again, because we our basal metabolic rate um, increases this week because of this, this, right. or you can see that in temps, right. They will go up past ovulation. Right. Right. So that that's sort of the, the, the basics of the keto cycling mm-hmm. that I propose in the book, but I think it's an important construct for women to be looking at the ever-changing hormonal environment that they're in and starting to adapt their nutrition. I also go into the book about exercise, how we can be changing and modulating our exercise based on our hormonal composition as well. Because this is, um, you know, we're not men. We're as, you know, as much as we can like to pretend that we are sometimes as I have, you know, we're not little men. We have, we are different almost every single day of our cycle. And we want to be thinking about how we can change the information, you know, whether that's the mechanical information or the nutrient information that we are, that we're giving our bodies in these, you know, this ever changing, you know, hormonal milieu. Love it. Um, Let's, uh, by the way, for anyone listening now, if you've got young kids, we're about to talk about some other female sexy stuff. So you might want to <laughs> pause or listen later, but let's talk about orgasms. You also, and again, of course, we can't get through everything in your book, but the different types of orgasms you should be having and why they're so important for female health. Now, my opinion on this is I'm always concerned when someone doesn't have a sex drive, right? To, to yeah. me, it says, uh, and again, whether that's they need to heal trauma or whatever it is. And I sort of live and die by that in a way, you know what I mean? I've I've always had a high sex drive. I feel it's a great sign of health. If anything were to start to wane in any way from that uh, would cause me to call my doctor immediately and be like, what's happening, right? Um, Or strength and orgasm or whatever. So obviously this is, again, another one of those sort of like vibrant health factors. Um, But I think also too, even if you don't have a partner, this is an important exercise, isn't it? So let's just get into the different types of orgasms. And again, how this relates to our, our sexual health and our health. Great question. So I think when we are talking about libido, this is, there are many factors, as you mentioned, which contribute to libido from a hormonal perspective, we can look to testosterone as one of the driving factors for our libido. And naturally over time, uh, if we're not careful, if we're not doing some of the lifestyle interventions that we talked about, like resistance training and eating, you know, to optimize for testosterone, um, testosterone naturally declines as we age. And so that can be, um, when T is low, when we have lower testosterone, there are many effects that it has uh, on a woman's reproductive system. So first libido is, uh, something that we will see attenuate. We can also see things like uh, you know, penetrative sex can become um, painful because she maybe she has poor uh, lubrication, or even orgasms can be painful because an orgasm, if you think about it, is contractile muscle. When a woman is climaxing, um, it's I believe it's twelve to fifteen contractions per second um, during an orgasm. So if you have low testosterone, that can like over time can lead to muscle weakness, something called rhabdomyolysis. So again, testosterone is very, very important for the health and well-being of our vagina 
vagina, uh, of our perennial region in general, uh, because orgasms are not, they don't just happen in the vagina. It's the entire perennial muscles that are, that are contracting. Let me, let me, I want to interject and this is, this could be TMI for some people out there, but I think it's important. And I might've said something on a perimenopause conversation with my doctor, which is, I started to feel a strange feeling that only a woman who had it would know. Like a guy would think my next comment is like, they'd be like, I'm clueless. There felt as I was going through, because I'm not in menopause yet, but I'm in my forties. So, you know, things are happening. I started to notice that the strength of the orgasms were, were less, but also I would walk around and I'm just going to say it the way I felt it, which is, I felt like my internal uterus was like weak, like things were about to fall into, like, I don't know. I just felt yeah. like strong there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep, some, yep. And only if you talk to another woman who's went, they're like, oh my God, I totally get this. Right. So what I thought initially was that I needed progesterone. It turns out that I actually just needed testosterone. I took a very low dose mm-hmm. within like three days. So many things happened. First of all, my dry eyes went away, which I didn't even know. Like, I just, I don't know how that happened, but they just completely went away. Um, and then also like my sex drive was still the same. Um, but I felt almost like my, my vagina had been lifting weights. Does that make sense? Like I felt yeah. like the strength even, and the even intactness the back yeah. and I haven't had children or anything. It's not, so mm-hmm. it was just such a strange feeling, but a better feeling like a more youthful, ah, yeah. Like the muscular structure there was strong. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. And I would even offer that the sensitivity, there's a lot of, um, you know, the sensitivity of the clitoris and the the sensitivity of the vagina at the opening at the vulva, you know, you potentially maybe had more sensitivity there as well. And this is all under the influence part. I mean, there's nerves that can like, there's the pudendal nerve and there's all of that, but growth hormone and testosterone are the two um, sort of big driving hormones that are going to work on the integrity of, of the muscles. And we have to think about the vagina as a muscle. Um, and so this is why, you know, I think Kegels are very important. I think, um, a lot of times when women will sort of complain about lowered libido, and if you, if you get into a, you know, a more, uh, intimate conversation, they might say that their sensitivity, like they can't necessarily, if they're, if it's, you know, we're talking about a heterosexual, uh, encounter and there's penetration that they can't feel, uh, you know, the, the penis inside there's like that, that the sensitivity that they have inside the vagina, uh, is lowered. So these are all potential indicators, um, that your testosterone levels are lowering. So, you know, first thing I would obviously recommend is if you have a, you know, the relationship with your primary is to go and look at your test, like your T levels, right? Like your total T and your free testosterone, um, levels as well. I think that that will give you, actually, I think you, everybody who's listening should actually do that now, whether or not you have a problem or not, because then you can actually measure, you know, when you are in perimenopause, what those numbers are looking like. So if you are, even if you're in perimenopause now, you should get some type of baseline for what your, um, for what your T like total T and free T, um, um, look like. And I will also say that the other things that were positive were I had more strength in endurance with weight training, more Mm -hmm. endurance in general. And obviously I'm like a high functioning, I have a high functioning brain. I feel like I'm I'm creatively on fire all the time, but I had started to lose some of that and I knew it wasn't related to thyroid. And again, within almost a week. And then also I was weepy about positive things, not even negative, just weepy about a wonderful nostalgic memory. Like I felt like I got so weepy about stuff. So all of the things I mentioned and the weakness and all, and then again, just doing low dose testosterone, completely 180 
all of those things from mental focus and energy, but I still have the ability to like, I'm not like a guy where I can't cry at any, you know, I'm not the guys can't cry, but you know, I still have an emotional, yep. like I still can like cry in a romantic movie. I'm not like, Oh, whatever. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm only on like one milligram a day. Like it, it's very low, but it really solved so many things. And quite quickly, I noticed those difference from, uh, you know, lean muscle mass, mental clarity, focus, um, the lack of like being overly emotional about even positive, sweet things. Cause then it felt like I was weeping all the time. Even if I was crying out of gratitude, it was like a little bit too much. I was like, my God, you know, I'm like, now my eyes are getting drier. So all of these things got fixed by me just implementing one thing that really helped all of those things. And I think there's just a lot of just generally a lot of shame around either hormone replacement therapy or bioidenticals. And I really think that needs to stop. Like if that makes you feel like I am just listening to the improvements in the quality of your life. And it would be, you know, even if we're having a conversation about longevity, it would be almost asinine to not consider. Right. Cause it's an anti-aging thing too. That's right. That's right. So I think that we have to really get away from this. Uh, there's this weird social, like this shame, guilt, something, uh, around, uh, hormone replacement therapy and, uh, and bioidenticals as well. I think that, and I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of, of both of them. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm just glad we can stay as young, young as possible with the advent of technology versus before, or as, uh, moisturized in all ways, right. Um, ways. Yeah. You and, got it. and my, and this is just my personal opinion. Like anyone can do what they want. Obviously I've known women that have chosen to go through menopause naturally through using, you know, like herbs and acupuncture and some other things. Um, but then there's this loss of sex drive or they've got to shoot something up there constantly to keep that moisturized because it gets painful to very heavily wrinkled skin and some other things that, you know, frankly, Stephanie, um, I'm not available for any of those things. I'm just going to say, <laughs> I so, don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have time for that shit. So I'm totally, I'm totally pro of this, but of course, um, and I just do want to say, I know lots of women have lots of wonderful help through this process naturally by doing acupuncture and herbs and some other things. So there's a way to do it naturally and gracefully if you'd like to, but it comes with consequences. And those consequences, I'm not willing to endure until maybe it would be absolutely necessary. Um, you know, before we go here, and I know you're not going to be able to sum it up all in, in, in a few minutes, but um, I guess you're saying type of orgasm, we're talking clitoral versus vaginal. Can you give us a rundown of maybe how people should start to look at the way in which they're orgasming or having sex, or sure. perhaps even pressing the importance of self-pleasure because it's a healthy thing, even if you don't have a partner? Yeah. I think that all women should be orgasming as a longevity tool. So, um, and you don't have to have, and I talk about this in the book, you don't have to have uh, a partner to do that. And I think that self-pleasure is something that even if you are with somebody should be something that you undertake as well as a health practice, because number one, you know, you can get to know what you like, right? You can get to know yourself a little bit better. And we all know that the, you know, the, you know, just throwing a little bit of mindset here, like the most, um, important relationship you're ever going to have with anyone at any time in this meat sack is yourself. So you might as well get to know yourself and what you like. And of course, if you're in a relationship, you can then communicate that to your partner in whatever, you know, whatever way, whatever you've discovered. And so I, I talk about in the book, the idea of, you know, to vibrate or not to vibrate, right? So I am a big fan of vibrators and self-pleasure tools. Um, I think that they can be, you know, very efficient. I think that they can be, you know, in between Zoom meetings, you know, you can kind of get, you know, kind of get her done. Um, but I also think that there's 
a time and place for when we're talking about self-pleasure, uh, manual stimulation. So using your fingers and maybe, maybe this is a really great time for the coconut oil. You know, this is where the coconut oil, all that extra coconut oil that you bought last year, you can start using Or, or it. I'm going to throw in a pitch for a primal kitchen avocado oil. Also very safe. Uh, to- <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because what happens when you're only vibrating, uh, you're only using a vibrator rather is you, there's a couple of different phases of orgasm. So we have, you know, uh, excitement, which is the first phase is when your heart rate and your blood pressure starts, you know, climbing, maybe some women will notice kind of like the red, like their, their, uh, chest and their neck, maybe their cheeks will start to get a little red. Um, nitric oxide starts to begin you know, to be released. And then the second phase is where we really want to focus on. And this is where the vibrator falls a bit short. So this phase is called plateau. This is before you orgasm. And this is, there's like this increased activity in the pleasure centers in our brain. Um, We have, uh, you know, anxiety basically gets shut down. We're able to experience more dopamine, um, which is um, a a hormone or a neurotransmitter of desire. Um, and then we, this is where we also experience like an increase in, uh, pain tolerance and stress tolerance. And this is actually really important for my ladies who get a lot of cramping and tenderness before the onset of your period, you should be climaxing around this time because it helps with that pain and stress tolerance. And then it has this hormonal balancing effect. So if you're always like skipping through that plateau phase, you know, because then, then we're, we're not getting all of the benefits, particularly in the, in the brain, um, that we, that we see. And then after plateau, we have orgasm and then resolution, which, you know, hopefully all of you know what an orgasm is, if not, um, you know, get after it. Um, but yeah, that that's, you know, I make that really big distinction between a vibrator and the type of orgasm that you might get, um, from a, you know, from a vibration tool or a toy versus, you know, the, um, the avocado sponsored, um, and the avocado <laughs> oil sponsored version. Um, but cause I think both of them are really, really important. Right. Well, that's really interesting because it kind that kind of, uh, solidifies well. And again, I'm all for like whatever anyone wants to do. Right. Um, but I've always felt that the vibrator was a cheap trick. Like not, also I've never, Meta penis that vibrates. I've never like it's, it. This is like a natural thing in the world, and I feel like, yeah, it's a quick thing in between Zoom meetings, and I get like, however you can do it, you do it. But then I feel you're missing this whole like lengthy thing you just mentioned, which to me feels more natural, and it also feels healthier in some way to me, whether that's true or not. But you sort of were just touching on that, so that sort of confirms like my original like I'm kind of anti that device, even though. I'm not saying in general for people, right? But just as the main thing, just like too much saturated fat, right? Like, right. Let's switch it up. Yeah. Do you know the origin of uh, why vibrators are even around? No, I'd love to hear it. Oh, so um, this was developed by a male psychologists. So at, I think it was in the, <laughs> so in the, I want to say in the, maybe forties, I might be getting this wrong. Don't fact check me on this, but it's in the four, like we would have women going to these psychologists for headaches, for anxiety, for depression. And I can't even tell you why, you know, so they were manually, um, climaxing. They were manually bringing these women to climax to help rid them of the headaches, the anxiety, the, you know, what they called hysteria, which is of course, if you look at the root of the etymology of that word is coming from the uterus. Mm -hmm. And these psychologists were, uh, psychiatrists, pardon me, were straining their wrists (laughs) because of all of the, um, 
the work that they were doing for their patients. <laughs> so they had these, they came up with this. I mean, they're much smaller today than they were uh, back then, but these basically these bullets that vibrated to be able to help their, um, uh, their clients. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm that, that makes a lot of sense too. I mean, such as it's almost like a, it was a practical thing, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. This has just been such a, well, I'd love to have you back on. Maybe we can target one topic specifically next time. This has been so great. And we will put everything in the, in the show notes to connect with you. Uh, but just again, you know, why don't you just share the name of your website with us? And of course, uh, your book, The Betty Body, but where can people find you? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So you can, the book is called The Betty Body. So you can find that on most online retailers, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, like any place where you might buy um, online books, it's there. Um, you can find me and more about my work at hellobetty.club. So that's H-E-L-L-O-B-E-T-T-Y.club. And that's my membership group for, we go into a lot of depth around fitness and fuel. We talk about the female psyche. We talk about the divine feminine, the divine masculine, and how we can really be whole. Uh, we talk about hormones in there as well. And then I also have a podcast. So like you, um, so wherever you are listening to this pod, uh, you can also find me. My podcast name is Better with Dr. Stephanie. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today and everyone else. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30 month or adding to your Primal approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sauteing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout.